remain standing, if you would, and open your Bibles, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We will pick up our text in verse 4. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Father, we thank you for your word. Bless the teaching of it, and I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's a blessing, uh, you know, every time when I get into a book, it always becomes my favorite book. It doesn't matter. Whatever book I'm teaching, it becomes my favorite because... You're in it and you just see all the things that are there that just bless your heart. And of course, today, as we're looking at this particular chapter in First Thessalonians, one of the things that I really appreciate here is we get to see more of the heart of Paul and Timothy and Silas. Their concern for the church, for the Thessalonians, is expressed here in great depth and, and full of, of heartfelt meaning toward them, uh, concerns that they had, and the declaration of how God answered those prayers and those concerns, and, and how they're going to be able to rejoice and be relieved of the concern that they had because of the testimony of what's going on in their lives. And so that's really a blessing. Uh, you know, I, I just want to make mention today being, you know, Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, this is a blessing. This day is a blessing as we recognize how precious and how wonderful life is. And uh, I got to tell you, we, my wife and I and, and Kate, too, we were blessed last night. We had a couple of our grandkids come over and spend the night with us. And what a joy it was. And, you know, I... <clears throat> I'm always amazed at, at what the Lord does and what he shows me. It's incredible. I raised a couple of them, and uh, I got to tell you, that was a whirlwind. 
You know, you're just trying to figure things out and you're going along step by step and hoping you're doing the best that you can. But when you get to be this point, now you get to stand back and just enjoy it, you know? And I was so blessed. The kids last night, they started asking me questions about the book of Genesis and Cain and Abel's, you know, wives, where did they come from and these kind of things. And I'm just sitting here going, this, I, I used to think that, you know, between the ages of three and four was my favorite. Well, now I'm finding out between about eight and 10 is my favorite, you know, I mean, because now there's meaningful conversations that take place more than entertaining conversations. You understand what I mean? And it just gives you a deeper, deeper appreciation for, for children, for the gift that they are from God. And what a tragedy it is that as a nation, we just take that so lightly. Uh, that we do not understand the preciousness of life, at least the way that we should. Now, that's not all, but certainly we see, uh, even with the reversal of laws that said it's no longer to kill them, uh, the intent of man's heart is evil continuously. And they try to figure a way around it so they can continue to do that. Praise be to the Lord that we recognize this day as being one that we see the preciousness of those little ones. And uh, we certainly want to have that in our minds and our hearts as we go throughout the year and thinking of these children, praying for them and praying for mothers uh, to make decisions to choose not to abort, but to carry the child and, uh, and to raise the child. Anyways, that's uh, just my little mention of that and I uh, couldn't help myself but, uh, you know, say a little something about that. Here in this uh, chapter, the thought began uh, back in chapter 2, verse 17, about the condition, the position of the Thessalonians. And, uh, and so I want to read a little bit from, uh, from verse 17 to verse 20 just to bring us to this point. Because there, in the original, this was, there's no chapter breaks and no verse breaks. This is just a letter, you know. Uh, we have a tendency that when we write a letter, it just we just write it on out, right? Now, if you know something about writing, you might break it up into paragraphs. But if you get my letter, you'll no discover very quickly, I don't know anything about writing. Uh, you'll just get one nice long note, right? But here we see, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 2, it says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope our, or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. So Paul, you know, he's telling them, he says, this is, this is something that we really want to know about is how you are facing the trials and the tribulations. You remember as we've been going through the first two chapters that we have pointed out that this was the theme, the, the purpose of the letter was to find out how they were doing with the trials that had come upon them because Paul had a very short period of time to spend with them. His concern was, is that when the trials came, that they would turn away from their faith and turn, you know, back to the world. And so he has this heavy burden in his heart. And this is why the letter is 
written, it's a response to Timothy going to them, finding out their condition and him bringing back an account of how well they are doing. What an easy letter this was for Paul to write. It's, it's all commendation. It's all, you know, he's saying, man, you guys are doing a great job. Keep it up. Do the, keep doing the good work. I love those kind of letters, you know, in opposition, or not opposition, but opposite of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, where Paul's writing letters. He's going, man, you guys, you, you know, you should be eating meat and you're still sucking on the bottle. You know, you're babes and you should be mature by this time. And especially seeing how Paul spent three weeks with the, the, uh, the Thessalonians. He spent three years with the Corinthians. But yet these guys were so much more mature than what the Corinthians were. You know, they had all kinds of issues. I don't want to go into Corinthians because we're not in Corinthians. We're in First Thessalonians. So we'll continue on here. And so Paul continues this thought when he starts out here in verse one. Therefore, when I could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. So when Paul and his friends left Thessalonica, they went to Berea and ministered the word. But troublemakers from Thessalonica followed them and stirred up opposition. Paul left for Athens while Silas and Timothy remained in Berea. Um, and you find that in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 15. Apparently, Timothy did join Paul in Athens, but Paul sent him back to Thessalonica to help the young church that was going through the tribulations that they were. So he says here, we thought it good to be left alone there in Athens uh, for the sake of them, for the sake of the Thessalonians. Uh, Paul was willing to be left in Athens alone. It cost him something to send Timothy to the Thessalonians, and he thought it was good to pay that cost. You know, we, we may not think too much of it, to be honest with you. I, I don't think too much of it to go to a, a strange town, spend some time there. It's not a big deal to me, but part of that is, is because I can come and go pretty easily and get around and not have to worry about it. Usually if I'm going to be there, it's going to be for a short period of time. So I don't worry about making friends or, you know, having relationships with people. But in their culture, in their day, to be left alone like that, Matt, they were really alone. And if you go back into Acts and you read what happened there in Athens with Paul, I mean, Paul, he's not the kind of guy that got a hotel room and just kind of hung out there watching TV, kicking back. He was out there. He went up on Mars Hill and he debated with, with all the scholars up there. You know, he went toe to toe with them. You know, and they thought he was mad because of the things that he was talking about, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul was there all by himself. And it, so to, to not have that support, you know, it's one thing if you're going to do that. It's another thing when you're going to do that and you have your friends with you. Isn't it easier uh, to stand when you have others that are with you? This is specifically why Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, not one by one. It's always easier with a support as you're going out to do the work of the ministry. So there was a sacrifice that Paul was making here. 
But understand that, that his, what was killing him inside is he didn't know how they were doing. And he was willing to pay whatever price he needed to in order to find out. He was concerned about them. And because of that, because of his concern, it says, And they sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. So several important factors were involved in this move. First of all, they sent Timothy to establish them. To, he says to establish you and to encourage you concerning your faith. In the previous chapter, Paul explained how much he wanted to be with the Thessalonians during their time of trial. However, since Paul could not be with the Thessalonians himself, he did the next best thing. He sent his trusted companion and fellow worker, Timothy, to them. Both uh, Titus and Timothy were those men that when trouble arose somewhere, when one of the churches was having difficulties and they were somewhere else, Paul would send one or the other in there to kind of straighten up the mess, to get things on that right track. And so he could have this confidence that Timothy was going to go and do exactly that, that he was going to bring to them the words of encouragement that they may need because they're going through tremendous trials. And so he sends, them, sends him there for that purpose. Paul calls Timothy, he says he is his brother and minister of God. The word minister here is deaconon. And it is, it's not an official title, uh, and it does not connote an ordained minister in the modern sense of the term. The word rather designates one who renders a service of some kind to another. It speaks of the servant in relationship to his work, stressing his activity of serving. Originally, the word denoted the service of a table waiter. And, and from that, it came to signify lowly service of any kind. It was often used by the early Christians to give expression to the service that they habitually were to render to both God and to man. Where a word like slave, which is often used of Christians, puts the emphasis on the personal relation, this word draws attention to the act of service being rendered instead. It says that he wanted them to establish and encourage them in their faith. So Paul wanted Timothy to do two things, to establish and encourage. Both are necessary, but establishing comes first. Encouragement can really only come after we are established in the right direction. Otherwise, we are only encouraged in the wrong course. So in other words, what's important is that there is that foundation, that, that understanding of the truth of God's word. You have to be, you know, encouraged in that. You have to be established in that. And then from that, you can receive encouragement to continue on. But if you don't have the truth, the only thing that you're going to find is you're going to be encouraged in things that are going to be uh, somewhat wishy-washy, you know, based upon feelings or, or maybe even 
you know, cultural norms or something rather than in the truth of God's word. And that's why being established firmly upon the foundation of the things of God and his word is so important in our life. And that's why so many Christians today are drawn off and, and pulled off into things because it feels right. It sounds good, but it may not necessarily align with God and his word. And that's the, that's always in our lives as Christians, what should always be that final word of arbitration is God's holy word. That always settles the argument. There's never any question. If God says it, it is true. It is right. It is correct. It is good. And you can count on it. Anytime you deviate away from that, if you don't like it because it just, you know, it's not something I really enjoy or something that I agree with with the Lord, it doesn't change the truth of it. All it does is it proves that we are willing to drift off course, not be established. And this was part of Timothy's job when he went back there. Remember, Paul had only been with them three weeks. There was a concern, I'm sure. Ah, man, did I spend enough time saying this and teaching that and giving them, you know, what they needed? Did I have enough opportunity well, Timothy's job was to go back and make sure that the things that Paul did teach them was sufficient, was enough, and that he could count on the fact that we, they were going to continue in doing so. And then also to encourage them, and to encourage them in the midst of trial and tribulation. You know, I got to tell you, I, there's, there's probably little uh, that I appreciate more in this life when I'm going through trials and tribulations than the body of Christ. I do. You know, it's a, the very fact is I know that I'm not alone. That as I'm going through it, that there are others that are with me. And even if they've never experienced the same trial and tribulation that I have, I have their heart, their concern, their prayers, their love. All of that helps me as I'm going through those things. Now, let's not take away from God, his Holy Spirit and his presence with us and his holy word. But they all three work together. It's not just one or the, well, it can be. I mean, God is sufficient for everything. His holy word is sufficient for everything. But God has chosen that he has given to us each other that as we go through these things that we can indeed endure and go through. To be encouraged as we go through it. And oftentimes we're encouraged because somebody else has already gone through it. They've come out the other end. They've got a testimony that speaks of how faithful God was as they were going through that very thing. Second Corinthians chapter 1. You know, that he is the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that in that comfort, we in turn can then comfort others as they go through their affliction. It doesn't have to be the same. It can be something else. The idea there is, is that God is faithful in all affliction to comfort. Doesn't matter what it is that you go through. God is faithful and he'll never let us down. And so we have to look to him. But this is where it comes to that, what I was just talking about. If we're distant from the body of Christ, don't expect that the body of Christ is going to be anything of any help to you. Because if my hand is severed from my body, how can my hand expect that the body's going to do something from it for it? It has to be connected. 
It has to be in, entwined in with my arm. All the ligaments, the blood vessels, everything that's there all has to be a part of my body as a whole. And if my hand doesn't get what it needs because it's distant from it, it's not the body's fault, it's the hand's. And I say that because I can't tell you, I cannot possibly number for you the number of times I've had people whine and cry because they were going something and the body didn't do something for them. They weren't connected. And because they weren't connected, there's no way that it's going to happen. And I can tell you this, I've seen it time and time and time again, that when one part of the body hurts, when they're connected, I've watched the body rally around that individual in order to be able to minister to them and to meet their needs as much as possible. And as close and as tight as you want to be with the body of Christ, with the church, then you're going to find what you have need of in the time when you have need. Because if they're if they can't meet the need personally, they're going to point you toward Christ who can. And they're going to encourage you in the word of God so that you can have your needs met. But if you're aloof, if you're often a distant, then don't, suspect, don't expect that the body is going to be able to do much for you. The body may even try. When a person comes and they say that I haven't been ministered, the body will try. But what happens is, if that person doesn't get connected with them, then it's of no value. It won't work. It's, it, it's of no value, or at least of least value. The word here when it says established is sterizo, and it means to stand, to set fast, to fix firmly, to cause someone to become stronger in the sense of more firm and unchanging in attitude or belief or strengthening uh, to make more firm. In verse 3, it says that no one should be shaken by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. So as they were established and encouraged, they would not, uh, as this was taking place, they would not be shaken by the affliction. Timothy's ministry would help them to endure that present hardship that they were going through. And without good understanding of the truth concerning the place of suffering in the life of the believer, we are in danger of being shaken by in our faith too. Perhaps it's even happened to you to where that as you've been walking with the Lord, something happened in your life and you think to yourself, I didn't, I didn't think Christians had to suffer this way. I didn't think this was supposed to be this way as a believer. And it's shaking you to your core. Hopefully, if that's you this morning, you understand that just as the message was to the Thessalonians, it is to us. That, man, life, tribulation, that's, that's a guarantee. It's not, it's not a maybe or a think so. It is, it will happen. It's an absolute. Paul, you know, in, in First Timothy, you remember when we were there, Paul even said it for those Oh, wait a minute, maybe second to me. Uh, those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. They will. It, it's, not a, it's not a if. It's just a when. And all those things are designed for this purpose, and that is to try your faith, to prove whether or not you really believe in God and will trust him. When everything's going good, 
it's easy to say, I love you, Lord, hallelujah. But when things are rough, when it's, our world is upside down, when it's difficult, that's when the true test of love and faith comes into play. Do we really love God? Well, the only way you're ever going to know it is if you're tested. Well, God wants to make sure you know. So he allows testing in your life. He allows tribulation. He allows difficulties in your life. Just as they were promised that it would happen to them. There were afflictions they were appointed to. As part of the normal Christian life, believers have an appointment with affliction. Some believe that Christians should never suffer affliction uh, and that God wants to teach only by his word. I can tell you this, it's always easier to learn from his word than it is by affliction, but it doesn't always prove to be the greatest strengthening. Just like a weightlifter, if he lifts very little weight, his muscles really will not grow. But the strong, or the more he lifts, the stronger he becomes. And just as it is within the Christian's life, the greater the tribulation, the stronger our faith and our spiritual muscles will grow as it comes. It's not comfortable. Nobody likes it. But we are encouraged in the word of God that we are to rejoice in it. To rejoice, not because of it but to rejoice because of the fact that God is there and he's testing us and trying us so that we can become stronger in faith and practice in our own life. God has promised us suffering would come. Hebrews chapter two, verse 10, it says, for it was fitting for him, speaking of Jesus, for whom are all, are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So in other words, Jesus, our savior was made perfect through suffering, that he found obedience through suffering, just as we do as well. In chapter five, verse eight of, of Hebrews, it says, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Therefore it is good enough to teach us as well. God does teach the believer perseverance, obedience, how to comfort others and deeper fellowship with Jesus through trials. One other thing that I, I wanna take note of here is uh, some believe that affliction means God is angry at the believer. And the truth is that affliction means that God loves us enough to give us, to give the best when we may only desire what is easy. The symbol of Christianity is the cross and not a feather bed. Affliction is just part of following Jesus. Therefore, Paul recognized that Christians are appointed to affliction. In verse four of 1 Thessalonians three, for in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. And so he told them before he left that it would happen and of course they, they saw it, right? They saw it in their own lives. Paul's concern was, was that through that affliction that they would turn away. 
just as you look at the parable of the soils in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 23, he described, Jesus described, the way some fall away when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word. And Jesus said, when tribulation arises, and not if tribulation comes, the Christian's faith will be tested. And Paul knew this, and as a good pastor, he warned the Thessalonians. So I guess I want to be a good pastor. I'm warning you. Yeah, the tribulation will come. Isaiah 48, 10, it says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Romans 5, 3 and 4, it says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character and character hope. And then in Psalm 119, 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. I have found affliction does that in my own life. It keeps me from going astray. I don't want to experience that again, so I go the right way. Second Corinthians 4, 8, it says, and we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. In verse five, it says, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to you to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. So Paul could barely endure the thought that the faith of the Thessalonians might be crumble under this season of affliction. And so he sent Timothy because of it. And he makes a point of it that lest by some means the tempter had tempted you. In other words, it is Satan's main objective for those who would confess Christ as their savior to tempt them to turn away. You know, we see oftentimes in the scriptures that God uses Satan himself in order to afflict his children, not punish them, but afflict them and to try them so that they will indeed look to him. We see that in the book of Job. You know, you ever read the book of Job? You start out in the first part of the book, right? And God starts out a conversation with the chomp and he says, hey, you ever consider my servant Job? Yeah, he's a fine, righteous man. Satan says, yeah, he only loves you because you have your hand on him and you won't let me do anything to him. He said, well, go ahead, test him. The only thing you can't do is kill him. But he gave him permission to afflict him. And when he did, it tried him and it tested him. And he passed the test. He didn't, you know, curse God and die. But through that affliction, he grew stronger as well. And we see that, that it happens. The tempter, he will come and he will try to exploit the season of suffering in our life as well. And uh, Paul was concerned that if they were to turn away, that their labor would have been in vain. If they wavered in their faith, Paul would consider his work among them to have been in vain. So as we look at that parable of the sower, you see that Jesus describes the seed that withered under those, the heat of trials. And if the Thessalonians withered, Paul's hard work as a farmer among them would have borne no harvest. It's a very disappointing thing in our lives whenever we invest into people's life, when we share with them the word of God and we encourage them and we try to build them up and then at some point they just turn away and 
walk away from the Lord. It's difficult to handle. It's not easy. And it doesn't matter if you're a pastor or you're not a pastor. You probably had people in your life that you share the gospel with, maybe a friend or a relative that is close to you. And, you know, they start out, they're walking, and the next thing you know, they're not walking with the Lord anymore. You know, they're off doing their things on Sundays that they used to do instead of hanging out with God's people. You know, and, and you, you call them up. Hey, you know, what's going on? Well, you know what, man, I tried that Jesus thing and it just doesn't work for me. Well, obviously you haven't tried the Jesus thing because it never fails. Jesus never fails. We fail him. We may fail to, to do what he asks us to do in order to find out that he never fails. But he never fails. And it's a disappointing thing when we see that happening in people's lives. And, you know, I know that I've experienced it, and I hate to say it, there was a time in my, in my life that I disappointed others with that same thing in my own life. So I know that I know what it's like to do that, and I know what it's like to have somebody do that to you. And you take it somewhat personal because of the fact that you've invested in them. You've taken the time to give them the word of God, but then they reject it. And so Paul was very concerned about this and that his labor would have been in vain. Verse six, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. So as they sent Timothy off, he comes back and he comes back with this good word. The good word was that they had remained faithful. They had stood strong in the faith and in love. These things are critical and important uh, to the church. Faith and love. That's what we have to be walking in and known for is faith and love. And, and Paul says, I, the word that came back with, from Timothy was that you guys were doing exactly that. And you, that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. You remember as we started out this book, we talked about the fact that Paul was having to defend himself against his critics. Those that had come uh, from, uh, oh gosh, Lord help me, having a brain freeze here where Paul had been driven, Philippi, as he had been driven out, and there were others that had come and had been telling the Thessalonians about what had happened. And also there in Thessalonica, there were those that had risen up, and they were the ones that were telling them that what Paul was doing was not right and that he didn't really care about them. He only stuck around for a little bit of time, and then he left, and, you know, all the stuff that he was having to defend himself for. And Paul says, I'm glad to hear that you're not listening to them that you understand that I really do love you, that I care about you, and that I'm concerned for you. He said, I'm glad to hear that, that you desire to see us just as we desire to see you. Paul desired to see them, and at one point in time in his ministry, he will once again. But it's important to remember that it's five years from the time of the writing of this epistle before Paul will ever get to go back and see them again. 
five years of wanting and desiring to be there to, to minister to them. We'll see here in a moment that he says to them, he says, I, I desire to see your face and to minister to you. There's that whole idea of ministering in person to them that, you know, the letter lacks. He had desired that. And, but it's five years. That's a long time praying day and night as, he, as we'll see, as he says. Verse 7, therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. So in other words, they were, they were you know, they were a bit anxious about what was happening with them. They were, they were worried. I don't know if that's the right term. Uh, Paul worry, he shouldn't. He wrote, you know, Philippians 4, uh, 6, and 7, you know, be anxious for nothing. Maybe it was after this that he wrote that, you know. Oh, man, I shouldn't have been worried about those guys. I don't know. I do know that he had great concern for them. In all their affliction and distress, they were comforted um, by their faith. And so as that report came as a sweet relief to the anxious missionaries, they were indeed brethren bound not only by the bonds of life in Christ, but also by the bonds of love for one another as Paul and more recently Timothy had been sources of encouragement to the Thessalonians in their persecution. So now the babes in Christ had provided encouragement to their elder brethren who had been persecuted by fears about the church's condition. Paul proved himself to be a true shepherd as he was concerned about them. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, where Paul gives us an account of all the things that he went through, that he suffered uh, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he lists out this whole thing of, of beatings and shipwrecks and, you know, all uh, in the deep uh, for a day and a night and perils of water and perils of robbers and, you know, perils of my own countrymen and perils of Gentiles and perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren in weariness and toil and in sleeplessness often in hunger and thirst, fastings often in cold and nakedness. And besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Paul carried a tremendous burden because he had a shepherd's heart. He cared about the flock of God. It is interesting as a missionary, as a church starter, because that's what he did. He started churches all over, and then he would leave them and go and start another one. Uh, what a difficult ministry that would have been to leave them behind and, and to have to just trust that they're okay instead of being there personally. And how hard that would be. But yet Paul... He saw that as being the greatest burden that he had was for the church. It, it was more than the beatings and the shipwreck and everything else that he had that happened to him. He said, this is on top of it all. This is the worst thing. My burden for the churches because he had that shepherd's heart. He was not a hireling. In John's gospel, chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, Jesus speaking of a hireling, he said, a hireling is he who is not the shepherd. One who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. 
the hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Certainly, Paul was not that. Verse 8, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. And so Paul had wrote this letter from Corinth uh, and is coming to the city that was marked by difficulty. And he said of his coming to Corinth, he says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Yet since Timothy came back with good news, Paul had a renewed strength and freshness of life. For now we live, he says. It made Paul feel much better that the Thessalonians were doing well. He's writing from Corinth. Corinth was a difficult place, a difficult church, very carnal. They were very, very carnal. They were always into the things of the flesh. Paul had to constantly rebuke them for the things that they were doing. They were, they were you know, they were into different groups. They separated themselves. I am of Apollos, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of Jesus. They had all these little factions. They factioned themselves. Paul had to, you know, um, rebuke them. I couldn't find the word. Uh, rebuke them for what they were doing. And then not only that, the fleshly pleasures with, with sex and all the different things that they were into. A difficult church. What a refreshment it was to find this group up in Thessalonica. Thessalonica, I'm sorry, in Thessalonica. That man, they were just loving Jesus and following him. What a refreshment that had to be to him in the midst of this very difficult time of dealing with this extremely carnal group of people. And he finds some people that love Jesus and want to do it right. What a blessing for him. Verse 9, for what thanks can we render to God for you for all the joy with which we render for your sakes before God? night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Here we see once again the burden of Paul, not only for them, but for many other, we find in many other places, Paul prayed in this way, that he would pray day and night. That means that he was praying often and long for, this, for the sake of the church. He wanted to see the face of the church family in Thessalonica. Paul wanted it enough to pray day and night exceedingly that God would make a way for him to see them. That they would be perfect and not lacking anything in their faith. Um, you know, it's interesting because, boy, we live in a world today that I find that a lot of people would rather text or call on a phone than to sit down with somebody face to face. You know? And the problem with all that, the phone may be not near as much as it is with either email, text, or even letter writing. And what it doesn't express is the body language that's behind it. You know, you can say something and, and have, it, have it mean one thing, but yet because you're not there with that person, you can't tell exactly what's the intent behind it. And today, we have become that kind of a culture. You know, the fact is, it's really easy for me to tell you what I think of you on Facebook or email or text. Yeah, it's real easy for me to do that. I don't have to see your face. I don't have to worry about you punching me in the nose because of what I'm saying to you. 
That's why I hate those things. People say to your face or say behind your back or through email or Facebook or anything else what they wouldn't say to your face because they're cowards. And I think that's what is happening to our culture. We've lost something that's very critical and very important, and that is to sit down face to face and to speak with one another. We see it in the continuance of people staying away from church after COVID. It's like, my church now is that I'm sitting in front of the TV and I'm watching you guys. Now, for those that are in a position where they can't get to church, I understand that. I'm grateful for live stream. I'm grateful for the things we do for those who, for one reason or another, that they can't possibly get here. I appreciate that so much. But after COVID, there's been many people who have decided they're not going back to church again. And you know, it's kind of like what you get out of church on TV is almost like you get when you sit in front of a faux fireplace. It looks great, but there's not much heat coming off it. And it's the same thing with sitting in front of a TV watching church. That doesn't make you a part of the church. Just because you're watching it doesn't make you a part of it no more than just sitting in here makes you a part of the church. Now, in order to be a part of the church, you got to sit in here. And that's what I'm talking about. You can't do it some other way. It doesn't work. You know, you can't You can't be a dad unless you're there in order to be a father. You have to. Same thing with mothers, too. Many people have tried. It doesn't work out too good. It usually affects those that are are the recipients of it. Paul wanted to be there face-to-face with them to perfect that what was lacking in her faith. To teach them, to express to them, so that they would mature into the people of God that God was calling them to be. Verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. So Paul, like I said, for five years, he will be praying that God will make a way for him to get there. His journey to come over in the first place was so God anointed that it says in Acts that when they left from Thrace, I think it is, when they came across uh, the sea, that they had a wind that literally just drove them straight across, which was not customary. Usually they had to zigzag back and forth in order to catch enough wind in the sail in order to take them over there. And so the journey was somewhat long because of that. But they had the favor of God who gave them the winds that blew them over directly. And they could see God's hand as, as they got there and began to minister in Philippi and all these other communities. God took them right over his, his hand. And so Paul is praying for that same thing. He said, I'm praying that the hand of God will be upon me and bring me back to you that I can see you face to face once again. It's that same kind of favor because he desired to minister to them. So, the church is founded, as we see here, upon the apostles. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. 
The church is founded upon the apostles with which Christ himself, the chief cornerstone, the foundation of the new Jerusalem and the 12 apostles in Revelation 20, 21, 14, there was something significant and significantly unique about the first century apostles and prophets and that that unique ministry is preserved for us in the New Testament. Paul being to get to them, to minister to them. And his, his words, as a matter of fact, you remember last week as we were talking about Paul, Peter even made reference, oh, wait a minute, I think I'm getting myself mixed up with Galatians. <laughs> Pete, I said it Wednesday night uh, that uh, Peter said about Paul uh, that, uh, that his words were virtually scripture. They were difficult, they were hard, but man, they were straight from God. And so it is too, even here, we see our need to, and desire to continue on in that. Our Acts 2.42, continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. Verse 12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. So. He says that may the Lord make you increase in your love. And this was not a loveless church. As a matter of fact, already that's what we were told that they were continuing in faith and love. And so they still had room to grow. Even though they were a church that was known for love, they still had room to grow. And love is an essential mark of the Christian faith. Jesus himself said that they will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. You know, I don't, I don't know that you can ever become loving enough. I don't know that the church can become loving enough. It's like we don't need to become any more loving. Uh, because of the interaction of people, that's what you have. And you have the spirit that's working in the hearts of people. But the problem is, is that we're still a bunch of flashballs. We don't always love. We try, but we don't always. We try. And so there's always room for improvement. There's always room to love more. And I, I can easily say that for myself and would trust that it would be for us all. Jesus spoke of that essential place, as I had said. The disciple, they will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. John also emphasized this principle in 1 John 4:20, when he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, uh, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So we are to abound in love one for another. And so Paul looked for them to show love to one another and to all. And this love begins in the family of God, but it must go beyond. Jesus told us that our love is small and shallow if we only love those who are a part of us, only those who are in our church. In other words, that love should, you know, cause us to want to go outside these four walls in order to reach those that do not know Christ. And then finally, verse 13, so that he may establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And so Paul knew that God wanted the Thessalonians to have their hearts established blameless in holiness. The idea behind holiness is to be set apart from the world and unto God. The genuinely holy person is separated away from the denomination, 
domination of sin and self and the world, and they are separated unto God. And so Paul exhorts them here that their hearts would be blameless in holiness. The heart must be made holy first. The devil wants us to develop a holy exterior while neglecting the interior like whitewashed tombs full of death. Blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul was reminded of Jesus' return because nothing can encourage us to holiness like remembering that Jesus might come today. You know, I hope that for you in your walk with Christ that there's no concern for you of what you're doing on the day that the Lord returns, that you are doing what you should be doing, loving him, serving him, praising him. That should be something that we desire to do every day, but certainly having in mind that the Lord is coming back someday at a time in which we do not know. That should keep us on our toes, if you will, right? Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians emphasized three things that are important for every Christian today. And that is, first, he wanted to be with them so they could benefit from his apostolic wisdom and authority. And so that, too, is what we want from him, from the scriptures. He wanted them to abound in love. Love is more than a feeling. It's an action towards one another. And then also, he wanted them to be established in true heart holiness. Beloved, we need that desperately in the church today. True heart holiness. And remember how I defined it. It is that, that we, are more, we are more inclined and more desiring of the things of God and his kingdom than we are this world. It's a tough battle. And there's a lot to be drawn away from, uh, you know, that would draw us away from the Lord, I should say. And even in the slightest degree that it affects our hearts and pulls us away into carnality and worldliness. It affects our political views, our cultural views. It affects our Christian views. And it's important that we understand that what the church needs is a good dose of holiness today, lining our hearts up with the word of God and what he has to say. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your glorious grace and your wonderful love. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you have chosen us, you've called us, Lord, and certainly you desire that we would be known for our faith and love uh, even in this place today. Help us, Lord, to apply the things that we have seen this morning into our own life. Strengthen us by the power of your might and your Holy Spirit. Lord, we can do nothing apart from you. All these things that we talk about must be done in the Spirit and in the power and in your word for direction. Thank you, Father, for these things. Thank you for this day. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Would you all stand, please? I pray that the Lord will just bless your week and strengthen you and encourage you, that he'd bring others into your paths, that you might share the hope of the gospel. And if that frightens you, prepare yourself. Ask yourself, what would you say if somebody asked you about Jesus Christ tomorrow or even today? How would you respond? If you don't know, well, the scriptures are pretty clear. You can do the Roman road, Romans 3.23, 6.23, you know, 8, 9, uh, chapter 10, 8 and 9, 9 and 10. 
I'll get it right, believe me. Uh, you know, these are the scriptures that you can memorize to know and to have confidence that you can share the whole. God bless. All right, let's sing When the King Comes Down. Thank you.